Welcome back to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories from outstanding business people, now brought to you by BDO Canada. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Mike Newton. Hello, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Before we get into a quick chat about education, we do want to mention our guest is really all about this issue. Philip Cutler, founder and CEO of Paper, a Westmount-based uh, online tutoring company that just blew up all across the States and is distributing their tutoring software everywhere to students uh, around the U.S. and also in Ontario. So, Mike, we're heading into our 15th season now of Inspiring Entrepreneurs, and uh, there's been a bit of a change. It is now presented by BDO Canada. You are now the partner and head of national development for BDO Canada. What has happened over the last few weeks? It's been a busy period, uh, no doubt. Uh, you know, part of uh, part of looking at uh, at the future of uh, of Fuller and our clients was, uh, you know, what does this look like in uh, five years, ten years, fifteen years down the road? Um, we had been part of uh, Leading Edge Alliance, which was an international organization for which I had been chairman of for five years. So the international angle uh, is certainly nothing new to us. Um, one of the things we were looking for was to provide a much greater depth into the Canadian marketplace uh, for clients. So um, looking at uh, BDO and where they sat, I mean, obviously, this was not done overnight. There was a lot of time and energy and, and, and resources and uh, research done into this. And, and, and we settled with, on BDO for a number of reasons, one of them being they provide on an international scale, uh, being the sixth largest uh, CPA, CPA firm worldwide. I mean, you got the big four, Deloitte, PwC, uh, Ernst Young, and KPMG, uh, and then Grant Thornton and BDO. So, you know, you're talking the six largest, you're talking 138 countries, 1,200 offices, Canada size, you're talking about 5,000 employees and uh, almost 500 partners across the country. So you're talking about a very wide uh, span of, of expertise, uh, a depth of knowledge, uh, and a resource base that is uh, that really is something that on, in the world we're living in today, a necessity. Um, I look at it from from Fuller's perspective, obviously, and it was not an easy decision to to make the move. Uh, however, I think uh, when we look at what's being provided uh, in an infrastructure from BDO, uh, it wasn't that complicated a business decision. Obviously, it comes with a lot of emotional turmoil for a lot of people. Um, but from a business perspective, it was pretty much, uh, you know, hands down uh, approach to doing things and ensuring that on a longevity basis for our clients, for our staff and for our partners, that this goes long into the future. I mean, I could go on for a, a couple of days in terms of why and depth and where I think the market is going. And I think the Implications to the mid-size accounting firm model, uh, but we can save that for a whole episode one day, Dan. If you want to dig into that in terms of the state of the accounting profession, uh, needless to say, uh, we've just gone through uh, basically what uh, we talk about all the time, Dan, and that's that business transition and and merging in and doing things. And you know, it's uh, it's one thing to uh, talk the talk. I guess now we're walking the walk in in this exercise. I was going to say, we've spoken so many times on the show about organizations becoming part of a larger whole and how that's so important to the success of organizations and to put uh, expertise uh, out there uh, more widely. How is that uh, adaptation going, Mike? How, how have things been as you guys become uh, what was once a very local outfit, FL Montreal? It's been sponsoring local stuff for so many years. Now, we know you guys. How has that transition to a bigger national, even international organization been going so far? 
We're only a you know we're only a few weeks into this, uh, and uh, needless to say, there are a lot of growing pains involved, but nothing that's unexpected. Uh, certainly, the people in in the Montreal BDO office have been have been really great, really accommodating, uh, very supportive uh, to our team. I mean, you have to you have to have a certain expectation when you do a transaction like this that you know you not everybody hits the ground running and that uh, it's fluid from day one. Uh, you're walking into policy, you're walking into procedure, you're walking into things that for years we may have been a little loosey-goosey on that now you have to uh, you have to follow up on. Uh, but the teams have been great. The people have been great here. Uh, the office in Montreal, and, and, and I don't joke when I say are literally across the street from us. We're in 1010 de la Gauchetière, and they're in, one, they're in Mill de la Gauchetière 1000. So, uh, you know, there's, there, there's this kind of this natural fit to crisscrossing back and forth to our offices. Um, a lot of the team leaders that, that have been in place here in Montreal have been spending time at our office in Montreal. Uh, again, I'm not going to lie to you. There, there, there's a massive, massive change management exercise that, that needs to be done. And, and having been on the other side of acquisitions many times, as well as doing M&A work for our clients, the first two months is always going to be your biggest pain point. And, and there's no doubt. I, I think the first two months, you're going to see yourself sitting in almost a negative efficiency level from where you were before until everybody gets up to speed. So those people that expect to walk into a new environment, and whether that's uh, in this transaction or any other transaction, that you know, you're going to hit the ground and everything's going to be perfect from day one, there's a lot of psychology and there's a lot of HR time that needs to be spent making sure that people understand the, the scenario. And now you can look back on, on the last couple of months of, of of all of this as we announced to the team and, and and what we were doing and say maybe I should have done this differently maybe I should have done that differently but you know that's uh, nothing's ever going to be perfect in a situation like this just note that Mike is dealing with uh, a large volume of emails and he'll be back to you shortly um, <laughs> FYI. yeah exactly also Mike you know your the commitments that FL for Landau has made to the community over the years have been really extraordinary not just this radio show of course the Cedars Dragon Boat Race and other community events important to mention that that commitment remains that does. Uh, part of the, uh, shall we say, part of the negotiating of the deal uh, was that our involvement within the Montreal community uh, stays the way it is. Uh, that So we continue as part of uh, uh, Cedars Dragon Boat uh, and can support. We continue the radio station. Uh, some of our contributions within the, uh, within the community uh, stay involved. We have a lot of partners and staff that are very active on, uh, on charity boards. Uh, those will continue. So yeah, the goal of maintaining the the culture that we had with Fuller going forward. Uh, and, and I will tell you that, you know, BDO has been extremely open to this. This really wasn't much of a negotiating point, I have to say, at the end of the day. Uh, it was very open-minded. And uh, I think that, I think there's a lot for a lot of us to to gain from all of this. And, and now combining efforts and and the skill set and the energy that, that, that the people have, I think if anything, it's just going to add to the community work that, that we've been doing, as well as the community work that they've been doing. They've been active as well. Speaking of the winds of change, let's get to uh, a little background on our guest today, Philip Cutler, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Paper. It started as a Westmount-based tutoring company and went online and is now expanding across the U.S., actually, serving uh, educational boards and school boards, uh, K-12 through around the U.S. The, the online learning push, Mike, it's so important not only for tech, but also to improve our traditional institutions like schools and colleges. 
Yeah, I, I mean, we'll get into this in, in, in a little bit deeper later with with Philip. But I mean, there's a couple angles here, I think, to me that are that are that are massive to just to, to look at from a philosophical standpoint. One is what is business's role in education? Uh, and two is is our understanding or is our uh, philosophical approach to higher education shifting? Um, I think before COVID, we were starting to see some of this shift happen. I think uh, COVID has accelerated uh, certainly the mindset of, you know, do I go and get a four-year university education in an area that I will probably never use, but hey, at least I've got a university education, or do I take the time and uh, go to a technical school and, and you know, try and find something that will, I will use for the rest of my life? And there's definitely a strong correlation, obviously, between education and, and earning power going down, uh, and, and, and that will continue no matter what this scenario is. But there was a very interesting article I read the other day on, on finance buzz and you know they were talking about the uh, the 12 jobs that will definitively survive the next 20 years uh and you know the the top three nurses um you're talking about nurses you're talking about electricians and you're talking about plumbers well those traditionally have fallen into our technical traits um my daughter happens to be a nurse and she did go on and and uh, get a university degree as well uh, and one of the things that we're looking at in in the world today is even while if you decide to go into that technical side of things you should still continue to upgrade and 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 learn and and you know continue and whether that's university degree or whatever the case is so that you don't become irrelevant but i think we're dealing with a a very different change and i think if you'll talk to a lot of late teens and and early 20s individuals they're not seeing the value of getting a four-year history or geography degree uh, in today's workforce. Uh, and that is not any knock at our system or somebody with a history or, or geography degree. It's how these kids are looking at their future and how they're going to apply these going forward. And for good or for bad, I think a lot of employers are now looking for technically competent individuals right out of school so that they don't have to spend the two years on the training curve, on onboarding and doing everything else. They can put them right to work in either apprenticeships or, or a lot of these roles. So I think we're getting a big uh, shift in a philosophical approach here to, to higher education. Philip Cutler will join us. And I think the interesting thing about paper is that uh, as tech is disrupting big ed, big education, um, a lot of these online learning companies want to replace big education, but Philip wants to complement it. And in a way he wants to support our institutions, which I think is a bit different. Yeah, I, 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 I am certainly not <laughs> stretch of the imagination uh, throwing out there that we should not be continuing going forward with higher education. I think it, it, it needs to be part and parcel of, of, of everything for the way we look at our educational system, but it might not be right for everybody. And we have to kind of stop that philosophical approach of saying, well, you didn't get a university degree. Well, you're not you're not at the same par as somebody else. And, and, and I think that's kind of a shift that's already happening. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's already starting to happen. And it leads down to the next point is, you you know, where's business's role within the education system? And a lot of people will complain that, you know, it's not necessarily a philanthropic approach to dealing with things. It's very mercenary. Are they taking advantage of, of school systems that don't have a lot of money in order to, to you know, to, to bring education to a profitable component, which is what most people complained about the private schools for years, right? Was that ability to, to have access to a lot more. Now, bringing, uh, you know, shall we call it corporate Canada and corporate America into the schools, it's going to work. But it's all about governance. It's all about how we're going to handle things. It's how about, you know, how we're going to go forward on all of this. And, and I think that there's a lot that can be gained from the business world uh, in the education system. But 
it can't be cutthroat and it can't be that kind of purely profitable capitalist mentality going into a public school system. From what I see, I mean, a lot of what Philip is doing with paper uh, was already being subcontracted to the private sector, but offline, right? Tutoring companies or workbooks or stuff like that. He's kind of combining all of this into into one software that uh, crucially students can access even late at night, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, that ability to gain access to information. And, you know, at, at one point we looked at this and we said, you know, that's how many people are going to have access to the technology? How many people can have access to Wi-Fi? Uh, you know, Philip's got some very interesting uh, stats and in, in understanding of all of this. I look at uh, what he is doing in particular and I, this is a this is complimentary. This is not uh, this is not shark like. This is not I'm going to take advantage of the system, and I think that will only beget more people in the environment and will allow for our systems to have better accountability at the end of the day. But we can't lose the concept of governance. I mean, that governance is still going to have to apply in and on both sides of the equation from the corporate world and also from the the public education system. One interesting thing about uh, Philip's business is is his customers. You know, for for a company that was based. In Westmount, a tutor, a former teacher, all of his customers are these really big American school boards, Chicago, Boston. Mike, what's your advice to people who are uh, who have a great product but have to sell it in a totally foreign land? Well, you know, it's always been a little bit of the problem of being Canadian, I guess, to a certain degree, right? I mean, we've had this the Silicon Valley whole uh, tech boom that you know, everybody complained we lost. I, I, I think there's a couple of things that have to be taken into consideration here. One is there's no doubt you need to go where the money is going to support. Uh, if you're getting VC funding, if you're getting uh, financing, uh, you know, the, you need to be where that money is going to be in order to support and gain the money you need to, to move forward. I think you also have to to recognize that uh, there's just a sheer volume. So depending on whether you're still looking to expand your software, your programs, whatever it is, the bigger market obviously helps. Um, But I would say don't lose your roots. Don't walk away from Montreal has been traditionally a hotbed of entrepreneurial spirit and ideas. And look, over the last couple of years on the show through COVID, I mean, we have showcased so many Montreal entrepreneurs that uh, have done such great things. This is a great city and, and Canada is a great country. And, and you know, you need to 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 recognize, but you will always have that capitalist pull. Uh, and I'm not sure that uh, I can say one thing works for everybody. I guess it depends on your objectives and where you're going. The problems or the issues facing education are on both sides of the border here. So Canada and in the U.S. And yes, the U.S. is going to give you a huge opportunity to roll out in a much bigger scale um, but I think that, uh, you know, in, in paper's case, uh, there's an equally uh, open market here in Canada that uh, they will continue to pursue. And I guess the next step is, you know, is it, these are the type of things you're going to take outside of the North American uh, borders. And what does that mean to uh, uh, a language issue? I mean, there's certainly opportunities here in the Asian countries and in Europe uh, in order to, uh, to try and boost uh, the education systems. As we head into season number 15 of this program, formerly called Today's Entrepreneur by FL Montreal, uh, what a great first guest that we're going to have for this year, Philip Cutler, the Westmount-based tutor who is disrupting uh, the tutoring business online all across the United States uh, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in investment that he's collected in the past few months. Let's get right to him. And I actually, Mike, I want to use CNBC to intro our guest today because he was on CNBC on the Power Lunch show just a couple of months ago, and it's not every day. Uh, where we see someone from uh, from Westmount 
on the big American networks. Here it is. Paper is getting pretty big. It's raised more than $350 million, serves more than 2.5 million students. And we were servicing typically wealthier families, right, who are paying $50, $60 an hour for private tutoring. And it was only once I was actually in the classroom as a teacher that I realized that those students were quite well serviced. There were so many choices available to them. And I was like, wait a second, we need to solve the other, you know, we need to solve for the other 80 to 90%. And now with paper, he's working to do that by using software at scale. School districts buy paper to give students additional help and give teachers insight so that they can target instruction. And uh, the Westmount-based online tutoring company that has uh, been going spreading across the U.S. and Canada is Paper. Its founder and CEO is Philip Cutler, who joins us now. Philip, welcome to CJD. Dan, thanks for having me. First question is the easiest. We had a pretty good recap there from CNBC, but how would you define paper? <laughs> well, I appreciate John Fort's introduction. Um, he he definitely gave good context there. So Paper is an online education platform that integrates into school districts, ultimately giving students 24-7 unlimited access to support. And so we're best known for the tutoring component of this, although there's a lot more to the platform than just the tutoring. And what we do is we build into the school district themselves or the school board so that every student has access to this. And it's a B2B solution. So it's being paid for and purchased by the district, by the school, and then rolled out to all students, really to give everybody the same level of support that they should have. So what level of education are we talking about here in tutoring? Are we talking K through high school or is this going to college and university? So we're predominantly K through 12. I mean, most of our customers are are in the U.S. Um, so we'll, we'll go you know, in the early grades, uh, kindergarten, grade one, all the way up through high school. And uh, John Forte's intro, he used the term scale. Maybe define the scale to, for <laughs> us a little bit. So I, I think when, when a lot of folks think about tutoring, they think about a tutoring center, or perhaps some sort of in-home support, somebody that's coming to your home. Most of those businesses uh, have great impact, but in terms of the actual scale and reach that that they have, um, you know, you may be talking in the best of cases, thousands of students. In our case today, we support, and John Ford said 2.5 million. I mean, today we're, we're well over 3 million. Um, and so what we've been able to do is actually solve for the academic support piece, which is quite challenging at scale for millions of students. And so we've been able to do that um, over the last eight years, really working with our schools to figure out like what's the right way to deliver this type of support? And then how do we manage the business side in terms of providing that support with our tutors and so on? So interesting. And on your website, you have the uh, you have an impact tab. Uh, I mean, impact means a lot of things to a lot of people and listening to you just bring it up now, obviously, what is, what is your goal? What is your impact? What are you looking to do other than obviously spread education across on a, on a wider base? So paper's mission is really to build student confidence above everything else. And our belief is that if you're able to build student confidence, you're going to get the results that, that you want. And if you really think about the purpose of schools, schools exist because we're preparing students for life after school right, when they graduate. And so we want to make sure that they have the skills to be contributing members of society when they go into the workforce or whether it's a post-secondary degree, whatever they decide to pursue when they graduate, we want to make sure they have the skills to do that and the confidence to be successful in whatever it is that, that they're interested in. 
So it, it brings up an interesting point, Philip. I mean, you know, you're talking about businesses place in school, and it's been a very hot topic. I mean, certainly in the US, uh, you know, the, you, you, you get the business involvement in college and everything else. But as we start looking at the elementaries and, and the uh, and the high school levels, there are people that say, hey, you know, business has no place in in school. Um, but then again, we have an education system that is struggling for money uh, and can't seem to do it on its own. What's what's your position? How do you feel about all of that? Well, Mike, I think it's a good question. And I think that there have historically been predatory examples where companies have tried to take advantage of public funding, right? That's no, that's not a surprise. I think that's the case, not just in education, but other public sectors as well. Um, I think the role that private companies play in education is twofold. Um, one is actually quite straightforward, which is businesses pay enormous amounts in taxes, and those taxes ultimately fund our schools. And so, you know, that, that's a bit of a simplistic view, but it's not a terrible thing for a business to be involved in the school system. Um, it's part of our economy, right? It's how everything flows. On the other side, and I think the probably more important piece of the puzzle is that businesses like ours and many others are built based on the fact that we think there's innovation and opportunity for change in schools. And so we're the ones who are able to go out, raise venture capital and invest in solutions that we think are actually going to advance the quality of education. So from my perspective, that's something that is really a private sector solution that needs to be invested behind. And then when it's successful, as you know, many companies have been, it gets integrated into the schools and so they're actually the beneficiary of a lot of the research and development that's been done to find more efficient ways, more effective ways to deliver whatever the solution is and support students, support teachers, support the school as a whole, ultimately the community really in a more innovative way. I think your discussion of supporting teachers is an interesting one. I mean, I think one of the biggest underpaid sectors of uh, of our economy are our teachers at all levels. Um, how how does this support and how does this you know other than the obvious way of supporting them through um, the educational support after hours? How else is this going to support the teaching system? So, there's no doubt that over the last several years. I mean, COVID's put a whole other meaning on what it's like to be a teacher. When I was teaching, and I'll be a teacher for very long, it was very different, right? I didn't have to, I wasn't a, a frontline healthcare worker, like so many of our teachers have had to become over the last couple of years. And so I think we're facing a couple of things in, in education when it comes to our teacher workforce. First, we're seeing teachers that are really tired. We're seeing teachers that have been working really long hours. They've been forced to learn new ways of teaching, whether they're remote, now they're you know back in class, some sort of hybrid model, you know, back and forth. That's been really difficult for a lot of folks. Um, and the second thing is we're actually dealing with a pretty significant pipeline issue when it comes to teaching. And a lot of states in the U.S. have had some really profound problems with recruiting teachers. And so we've seen enormous teacher shortages. And by the way, this is happening here in Montreal as well, right? This is sort of everywhere to a degree. Because to your point, Mike, teachers have been underpaid and underappreciated for a really long time. And now in a lot of cases, they're subject to sort of this political scrutiny that they don't necessarily, in my opinion, deserve. Um and so because of that, they're saying we're seeing a lot of pre-service teachers or folks that might become teachers consider other professions, right? Or they may even decide to come work for a company like ours where they say, I don't need to deal with uh, the day-to-day -day of being a classroom teacher. I can become a, a, a tutor. 
um, and it'll be a very different lifestyle. So I think that it's been a really difficult few years for teachers. I think we're starting to realize as a society how valuable teachers really truly are and how we should consider you know, not just paying them more, but but actually being more grateful for the work that they do. And Philip, in terms of the, your operations, I love websites. I love a website that tells a good story. And when I go to yours, there's a module on there that shows a student sort of really stressed out late at night, you know, trying to find the answer to something. And then they get into the, to the program. And uh, even in the middle of the night, they're finding the answers through, through the software. Is that really what's going on right now? Are we there yet? Can students find that 24-7 support through through paper? And how does that change the game for how students can learn? They are using it around the clock. And, and one of the things that we've really seen over the last couple of years, and I think to a certain degree, this is, was accelerated by school closures, the pandemic, and so on, is the fact that students' expectations have shifted. What they expect now is to be able to learn around the clock that there's always somebody who's available to support them and, and that learning isn't confined to the four walls of the classroom or you know eight to three during the day. It can happen anytime. And for some students, especially the ones who um, you know who may be looking to, to excel um, or may be struggling and looking for resources to support them, they want those resources to be there anytime that they need it. And so in some cases, that might be, we've got a lot of students who they've got siblings that are using the internet until 10, 11 p.m. and they only get access at that time. And so that's when they get the, the device to, to be able to log in. They're coming on at midnight. They're coming on at one o'clock in the morning. And that's when, that's the only time that they're available to be able to, to jump on. And that's fine. They're, that's when they're learning best. It's going to be an interesting conversation when mom or dad knocks on the door and says enough screen time and you say, no, 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 I'm actually doing homework and tutoring. So it's, uh, you know, it's going to bring a whole new element of uh, of conversation here. Um, one of the things I, I, I want to ask you about is, is this ability to to expand it within the classroom and not just, you know, the ability for one student to access an individual component of a looking at can this be used for actual teaching within a classroom and COVID obviously is brought brought this to the forefront. It can, and it is. About 60% of our usage is in the classroom. And so teachers have integrated the support into their daily activities. I mean, we have a, a product we call Missions, and it's um, it's sort of like a practice area for, for math. And a lot of our teachers actually start their classes with that. So when the students walk in as a bit of a warm-up, they'll do the daily mission. Think of it a little bit like Wordle for math. They're, they're, they're building that into the way that they actually teach. We also have a product called Review Center where students can upload any of their written work and then that gets annotated feedback from one of our tutors. Both the student and the teacher will see that feedback. So what the teachers are doing is they're actually requiring students to put their first draft through paper and then they and the student will see the feedback that was provided. So it takes a little bit of the weight off the teacher and allows the student to get a different set of eyes on, on their work. From a business side of all of this and, and and how it works with paper, I mean, how do you get into the schools? How do you charge? Like, how does how does paper exist? And and how does our, our education system that apparently has no money for anything find a way to get, get you involved? So a few things to unpack there. Um, in terms of how we actually work directly with the school districts, generally speaking, um, we're looking at, I mean, obviously, this is all very public. We're in public education. We're looking at the, the schools, the districts, the school boards that are prioritizing supporting their students and providing academic support. So in, in our case, that's a lot. That's a lot of the districts. Um, and it's a priority. In terms of the funding piece, 
really, it, it sort of boils down to the prioritization of needs that the school has. And um, in a lot of cases, what we're seeing is districts being a lot more careful with each dollar that they spend and making sure that that dollar is actually impacting the most students that it can and the results are there to support it. Um, and so we saw a school a couple of years ago, they had this, this music program that was fantastic. They're spending about $400,000 a year on it. There's like a dozen students participating in it. And maybe 20 years ago, this was a program that was really popular. It had sort of lost a bit of the support, yet the district was kind of renewing this thing year after year. And they said, this isn't equitable. This isn't the best use of, of, of our money. Not that music isn't important. It's just the community has changed or the needs have changed. And so we need to reevaluate how the money is being spent. Um, and they looked at it and they said, well, we know our students are, are seeking academic support. Our parents are asking for this. The community is demanding it. We need to find a way to, to make this something we can provide. And so I think districts are really having a lot more scrutiny or looking at everything with a lot more scrutiny and saying, is this the best bang for our buck? Is this the best way to be investing in the community? How do you how do you scale this upward to, say, college, technical schools, universities? Are you in there yet? Is this something that's on the radar? Where, where do you stand on getting to the, shall we call it, the higher education levels? Right now, our focus has really been on, on K-12 and expanding the way that we support students from a K-12 perspective. So for students that um, are, you know, on the first day in kindergarten, all the way through the day that they graduate, they should be getting support through paper. And if you think about the purpose of schools more broadly, I mean, what are we trying to do? We're trying to support our students and give them the resources to excel because we believe that the schools are actually preparing students for life after school. Right. And whether that's going to a, a college or university, whether that's going directly into the workforce, um, you know, that's and by the way, that's very much a changing landscape right now as we start to realize, you know, maybe getting those history degrees isn't necessarily the, the, the path for every single person. Um, and in the U.S., as we know, college can be incredibly expensive and you may be spending decades paying off your, your student debt. And in some cases, maybe that wasn't the right pathway for you. So we're really focused on supporting students in K-12. Does that mean we're, we're sort of closed off to the idea of higher education? Absolutely not. But this is something that we're really trying to expand our offering um, more on the K-12 side. Philip, on the tech side, there are a lot of companies in ed tech that want to disrupt higher education and disrupt or even compete with the institutions, you know, going so far back as uh, Khan Academy or TED Talks. You are are working with the institutions, which I think is interesting. Do, do you do you see our higher educational institutions being a permanent part of the landscape, and uh, do they just have to adapt better to the way that that people learn online? Well, I think there's no silver bullet, and so paper is not uh, the one and only solution that a school would be considering. And I think a lot of the resources that exist need to sort of there needs to be interoperability between everything, and so it's not so much that everything is competing against each other. To a degree, it is because we're competing for, for the attention of a student. Um, but I do think that there needs to be better collaboration between a lot of these organizations if we're truly trying to support students. And there's going to be, um, there's always going to be new things that come up, new things that emerge. And some of them are going to be more practical and more beneficial than others. So it's hard to, at sometimes to, to recognize kind of what the benefits are. Um, in our case, I think tutoring is something that you know, we all know the benefits of, um, we've got research to support, you know, our particular model, but the reality of the situation is, you know, there's always going to be changing landscapes. And part of that's driven by the fact our students are constantly changing. 
You brought up a point earlier, the discussion between uh, technical schools and, and, and universities and colleges going forward. And I think COVID is uh, basically responsible for accelerating a conversation that was going to be had eventually that I think has really been pushed forward. And that is, you know, the traditional path was you went to university, you know, you got a, you got a generalized degree, you might not have come out with any kind of specialty, you went into the workforce, the employer spent time, education, money moving you forward to get you trained. You're starting to see a lot of businesses now really looking for people that are technically uh, proficient from day one. And uh, obviously, it, it cuts down on the costs associated for employers decide uh, to engage. 100%. And we're, we're seeing this across the board that um, in so many cases, the schools have been focused on what they call college readiness, getting students ready for college. But in the best of cases, you're looking at maybe 50% of students going to and graduating four-year colleges. In some states like Mississippi, where we have a statewide partnership, that number is like 25%. So three quarters of students are not going to graduate from a four-year college. They're going to be going into a technical or vocational school, a two-year community college, directly into the workforce, the military in a lot of cases. And so for them, it's identifying the right pathway and understanding what courses you need to take and where you need to excel in order to be able to, to go the path that makes the most sense for you as an individual. And this is an area that we've been investing enormously behind because we believe this is actually the purpose of schools, right? Why does the math test matter? Well, the math test matters because we think math is a skill that's going to be beneficial later in life. We're not just pulling this out of the air saying, well, math is math and you need to know math. We actually have you know, data that says in a lot of cases, understanding math or reading or whatever it may be is a skill that's going to be required in the workforce later on. So it's not just about, if you think about a student in school, you need to be able to give them some context as to why the class that they're taking is important, particularly when you get into middle and high school. And so we've been spending a lot of time thinking about What's the best way to do that? And not just pushing students towards a four-year college, which is super important and it'd be great if everybody was going that route. It's just not the reality and it's not necessary for so many students. And so we're definitely investing in, in areas that are going to make it way easier for students to choose the right pathway. And then we'll have the academic support piece that allows them to actually do great, do the best that they can in the courses that they're taking on that pathway. It's interesting because I think a few people are concerned that we're, tra you know, trading off long-term intelligence or long-term education for short-term immediacy of use of, of skill set. And, and I think one of the big issues in the technical training is this ongoing push uh, that even though you are going technical, uh, that you don't give up on the education you, because otherwise you can find yourself being uh, irrelevant relatively quickly. Absolutely. And, and I, I think... Well, well, the reality is that that may be a concern that folks have. It's not actually what's taking place. We're seeing lots of people going into the trades and they're spending decades right through apprenticeship programs, learning, constantly developing, getting better and better and better at what they're doing. And so the learning doesn't stop when you graduate. The learning is really just beginning. We've given you the foundational skills. Now you're going to go out and you're going to continue to learn on the job and you're going to get really, really, really good at whatever that particular trade may be. And in some cases, you know, maybe you're going to look at it and say, this wasn't the right trade for me, but I'm taking some of the skills I've learned for this and I'm going to apply them to another career as well. And continuing on with a little bit more for our podcast audience with Philip Cutler of Paper. And Philip, we're talking about disrupting ed tech before 
and or disrupting big ed, I should say, with with ed tech. Is is that the goal of paper, or do you are, are you uh, a believer in the institutions? Do you want to work with you know a Harvard one day or or Yale and and help them uh, usher their students along, or do you believe that that this has to be decentralized? So we work alongside the institutions, and our view is that those institutions play a critical role. They're part of the community. You know, in our case, it's more in the K-12 side of things, but the school districts that we're working with, the school boards that we're working with, they know their community better than any business would. And so we rely on them to be able to, to echo really what their community is asking for to help us understand how can we best support those students. And again, in our eyes, it's not really a, an either or type of situation. Um, you know, there's a lot of legacy providers that exist out there that have great solutions that support students. Um, there's a lot of legacy providers that are out there that have very antiquated solutions that are out of touch with where education is today. I think it's up to the education leaders to be able to make that decision in terms of where their community is best suited to be supported. While we take laptops and Wi-Fi for granted, there are, there are a lot of places still, uh, predominantly, I guess, in the U.S. that are either short on the, on the technology or uh, lacking the funding or don't have access to Wi-Fi. How how will how do you work around this? How are we going to find a way to to get people up and running? On uh, uh, obviously, this is what you're doing with paper requires obviously a technology base. In the U.S., over the last couple of years, they've approved $190 billion through the three stimulus packages that, that were put through, all for K-12 education. And the majority of that $190 billion is specifically earmarked to innovate schools and support schools in, in new ways. A lot of it initially was spent on hardware and network infrastructure. So pre-pandemic, you had about 60% of schools in the U.S. that were one-to-one -one with devices. That meant the school actually provided a device to every student to get them connected. By August of 2020, so four or five months into everything, um, that number had risen to 95%. And today, it's more like 99%. You'd almost, it's almost impossible to find a school district that's not providing devices to their students at this point. Um, what came with that as well was the network infrastructure necessary to get kids connected. And the truth is there are definitely some communities. We've got some schools that are in very rural areas that you know, even having a hotspot that's provided by the district may not connect. And so we know that there are sort of limitations that may exist, but it's very you know, far and few between, if we're being honest. Um, and I think a lot of those communities are moving in the direction of getting connected more and more. So we see it as less of a concern than we did three or four years ago. Uh, Philip, customary sort of technophobic oriented question about artificial intelligence. Do you incorporate it into paper? Do you plan on using it? And do you have any red lines as far as using something like a chat GPT to, to give rather precise answers to students in some cases? So I, I appreciate that. I mean, I've had so many folks reach out to me over the last couple of days, including, you know, the, the CNBCs of the world and so on, who are like, okay, everyone's talking about you know, chat GPT and AI in schools, like what's your take on it? And, and the truth of the matter is, you know, from our business perspective, we're excited about it because we just think it's another tool, another resource that students can benefit from. And ultimately, it, you know, if it's used properly, it's going to be highly beneficial. Again, there's going to be a learning curve to how you use this properly and how it gets adopted and so on. And there's definitely, I, I sort of view it as, as there's three schools of thought. There's a school of thought that says, this is fantastic. Let's integrate it. Let's teach our kids how to use it. This is going to be a great resource. It's like the new calculator, you know? Then there's a school of thought that says, this is dangerous. It's changed. We don't know how to use it. It might be abused. Let's ban it. 
And there's a third school of thought that says, what's AI and what's chat GPT? And so you've got a little bit of, of, of everything, I think, in every community. Um, but I do think that these are, are going to be resources that they're not going away. There's a novelty to them right now that I think is perhaps overstating the value that they're providing or could provide at the moment. Again, they'll continue to evolve. So I think the products are going to improve. Um, but I do think that this is not something that we're, we're seeing a flash in the pan and that it's going to disappear. Like We're really excited about what this can do. So I can't leave the show without a discussion on governance. Uh, there's no doubt that when I go back to our conversation earlier about the place of business within the education system, um, I think there's, I, I, I do agree with you. It has to be part of it. I, we, I don't think we have a choice going forward. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to, to fund properly and, and do what we have to do. The issue I have, I guess, is how do you, how do you manage governance? How do you ensure that um, from paper's perspective or in general, using the business environment uh, doesn't go the wrong way well in our particular case when we partner with our our customers um everything that happens goes through a board so it's approved at board by the board of of trustees or board of, of directors um and so there's a lot of transparency in what we do just by nature of it being public entities and so from from my point of view, I, I actually, I mean, as frustrating as that may be at times where there's like a whole extra layer that we deal with um, that other industries may not, um, I actually think it leads to better accountability for everybody, for us as a business, but also for the schools and the school boards, because they're now being held accountable for the decisions that they make. And if they decide to invest in a solution like paper and it doesn't get uptake, well, that's not going to look great. And that's happened in the past as well, where we've been criticized because there hasn't been the strong usage. And most of the time when that happens, you know, we have a responsibility, but it's also that it wasn't implemented properly. And so everybody has some accountability there. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that we all need to be held accountable. I, I totally agree. I think, you know, a lot of the complaints in the school system, especially the public school systems, have been a lack of accountability and b a lot of politics. Uh, you know, I think when you bring in an outside partner, you bring a whole new perspective to to the way we see organization and uh, allocation of resources and everything else. So uh, fascinating, fascinating, Phil. Very, very, very good to hear. We have the one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs on the way from Philip Cutler of Paper. But first, let's get to our expert on valuation and certainly something that Philip has gone through uh, in the last uh, few months, certainly, and how to find the valuation, how to, how to just arrive at those key uh, value drivers and what valuations people are getting, Mike, these days. I mean, uh, what is the state of affairs right now uh, for investment in uh, Q1 2023? You know, the market is, uh, is is very interesting. I mean, we we went through uh, a lot of M&A activity in a number of sectors for for a number of years. Obviously, the uh, the jump in interest rates has has an effect on uh, the overall M&A market. Um, but uh, you know, it becomes more costly all of a sudden to borrow money to to finance a deal. Uh, however, to get there, you really need to have a proper valuation at the end of the day. And, and JF, from from your perspective, I mean, I know there are different valuations and different ways to approach things. Maybe discuss a few of those with our audience. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So you know, in, in a nutshell, you've got really three different approaches that you can use to value a company. Um, you've got the income approach that you know will imply that you know there there is some goodwill uh within that business so uh now it becomes a question of you know either looking at the the, the future cash flows or you know for companies that are more you know have a, a steady um you know profitability uh you know uh, very 
um, like profits that are recurring from a year to another, like very steady, uh, you know, you're going to be, you know, using past results and extrapolate a value using that. So that that's one approach that you can use. Um, you, you could also for, for companies that, you know, you don't have goodwill within the, the business. So for instance, holding companies uh, or portfolio companies, uh, it, it's really a function of the assets. So you would adjust your net book value to, to, you know, to bring those value to fair market uh, valuation. Uh, or you you could use a third approach, which is a market approach, you know, either looking at recent comparable transactions or uh, at comparable publicly traded companies. But, you know, that becomes more challenging because you really need to see or to to, to make adjustments so you know you, you you have you know two two comparable companies which could be very challenging so uh i like to say that you would use a market approach more to benchmark your valuation that you're you know you're getting at just you know to get comfort around your conclusion what you're saying is my cocktail napkin approach to valuations may or may not hold sway at the end of the day. I got it. I got it. Stay out of the stay out of domains. I don't know too much about. I got you. Um, <laughs> Dan made a point earlier and brought up the term key value drivers. Maybe yeah. uh, describe that for our audience. I guess what you need to understand is, you know, different business different type of businesses, different key value drivers. But really, when you're looking, generally speaking, uh, and and that that that's one of the main thing that you know you're you're going to be looking at when you value a company is the growth, the potential. If you have a double digit growth company, triple digit company uh, growing, uh, that that becomes very uh attractive and uh you know that that that's going to show somehow in the valuation um the customer base obviously uh the more diversified the more broad the more recurring you've got you know uh a client base i mean obviously that that's going to reduce the risk of a company and obviously that's going to increase the, the value uh there are other you know uh key drivers namely you know the market environment uh you know just think about uh, you know how, how how much of innovation you see in a market uh j just think for instance uh, kodak a few years ago when all of a sudden uh you know you 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 brought to the marketplace all these uh, digital digital pictures and you know all of a sudden kodak was no longer the uh the company that you know was number one in this space so you know you, you got to consider that and the one last thing that people tend to underestimate but to me it's, you know it, it means a lot is how, how transferable a company is and what i mean by that is in terms of process procedures you know we we very see companies where it's about the owner the owner has relationship with clients that have been with him for i don't know 25 30 years you don't have any contracts in governing the relationship if you're a buyer and you want to go in there and the owner leaves with all that knowledge all that you know goodwill i mean the company could collapse you know from one day to the other so th these are super important thing in my opinion just to make sure that whatever you have in place is transferable and you don't have any personal goodwill associated to to an owner it's an interesting topic though jeff because a lot of people uh you know obviously while they're running it say that uh you know they are the key element when it comes time to sell all of a sudden oh i'm not so not so important anymore uh, as they try to pass that on how do you sift through all of that when you're looking at the valuation and determining whether there's a premium or a discount associated with that topic so these these are questions that we're asking to owners. Uh, you know, the the more stuff that is documented on paper, contracts, agreements, whatever it is, 
that, that these are things that we're going to be looking at. And obviously, as I mentioned, if if you have nothing, I mean, it doesn't mean the company is worth nothing, but there's certainly an extra element of risk uh, associated to that transaction, to that potential transaction. So as as someone who's willing to buy a company, I mean, you you, you want to have that peace of mind that, you know, there's going to be cash flow that will be generated in the future after there's a transfer of ownership. But I mean, if nothing's done on paper, it becomes like more risky. So obviously that reduces your purchase price from that perspective. So looking at a manufacturing environment might be a little bit safer and a little bit easier in that versus say a professional services firm where everything is in somebody's head. Absolutely agree with you, Mike. And it's more tangible as well, right? So completely agree with your comment. So I was going to ask, Jeff, what, what are you seeing in the market right now? What are we seeing? Are multiples uh, dropping because yeah. of interest rates? Are, uh, you know, what, what, what's the market bearing? Interestingly enough, like t- 2021 was a record year in terms of uh, deals that were made, in terms of valuation of the deals. And for the first three quarters of 2022, the data that we have, it suggests that the number of deals will go beyond what we've seen in 2021. However, the valuation is is expected to be less lower, okay? So that means that your valuations are going down on a deal basis. So your multiplier, your enterprise value to your EBITDA matrix is going down as well. And as you've mentioned it, Mike, uh, I mean, the, the, the market is really interesting in a sense that you've got your inflation that is through the roof and, you know, central banks are trying to control that by increasing rates. You know, here in Canada, uh, it's been... F- you know, 400 points up since the beginning of 2022. Next year, there's another meeting of governors. We'll likely have another, you know, raise in the rate. So that all of a sudden, companies, you know, they're spending much more money financing their their debt service. And obviously, I mean, the the the, the higher your cost of borrowing is, the lower your valuation will be. Uh, and interesting enough, that 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 might be my last take on this. I mean, we're we're probably heading into a recession. We might already be into a recession. But one of the interesting metric that I've been looking at is, you know, these ocean carriers leaving China uh, to the U.S. In in the last few months, the volume is dramatically down. I've read somewhere that you know orders heading to the states are 40% down, which at this time of the year, you're supposed to be, you know, supplying uh, for the spring and summer season, and also bookings being canceled last minute, uh, you know, and, th- and that matrix is six times higher than what it historically is. So probably companies from all over the, 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 the globe, you know, lo- looking at everything happening and, you know, d- deciding to reduce the amount of inventory because they, they, they feel that, you know, there's going to be less spending. So, Again, within that environment, that drags down the multiplier, uh, obviously, and, uh, you know, uh, it's really hard to have more visibility beyond the next few months. But yeah, I mean, compared to 2021, which was a record year, 2022 was not that good. And the first few months of 2023, we're still, you know, dealing with that uncertainty, which, again, drags those multiple down for uh, for the next uh, the next few uh, few months, at least. One last question, JF, for our, our podcast audience, and uh, that is on crazy valuations. And I want to bring up the website Twitter.com, which I believe has made the news a little bit in uh, in recent months, and Elon Musk's valuation, which is, everyone says it's really quite out there. I mean, in some cases, people are saying it's it's the valuation is twice as, mu- as much as it should be. How much difference does an eccentric or visionary leader make in, in the valuation of some of these tech companies, especially? That's a very good question, Dan. And 
Listen, I mean, let, 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 let's put aside the ego of those personalities and, uh, you know, always willing to have the last word. Um, obviously, when money's no object, you can come up with all kind of valuation that you want. I mean, in, in terms of how much you're going to be disbursing to, to, to put something, you know, to, to, to land a transaction. But there's one thing that we need to understand, and that, that's going to be more of a general comment. You know, you, you will always have premiums that are being paid on a transaction or sorry, I should say very often when you, you're dealing with strategic buyers. And the reason for that is, you know, you see potential synergies uh, that you may benefit from. So, I mean, how much those synergies represent in, in terms of as a percentage of the purchase price? I mean, it always depends from a transaction to another. But, you know, when you are uh buying something and you know all of a sudden you have two department of finance you've got you know two people doing the same task so you there are some synergies that you can get out of a transaction which you know will result in a higher purchase price because you know you're going to be able to cut back on future costs so there is always those premiums uh, but, you know, when it gets to ego and to, you know, I really want to do the deal and it's all, you know, emotion driven, I mean, there is no really like matrix to, you know, govern that. I mean, it goes beyond anything that, you know, would be logical. So, yeah. So we can't measure media hype so precisely just yet. I mean, maybe in the future, uh, in the near future. But for now, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, emotion involved in there uh, that, that, that we can't like really, uh, you know, quantify. Hard to, uh, it's hard to put a value on. I got to have it. Exactly. Exactly. Jean-Francois Audet, thanks very much. Thank you, Dan. And towards the end of our show, we turn to our guest, Philip Cutler, CEO and founder of Paper, and ask him for his one piece of advice, Philip, to inspire entrepreneurs. Dan, I, I think the biggest piece of advice that I ever received, and I'm happy to share with the audience, is that you can't give up. And there's always going to be obstacles thrown in front of you. People are going to tell you that what you're doing doesn't make sense, that you should do this, or you should do that. But it's all ultimately up to the entrepreneur to just persist. And you can't quit. You can't give up. You have to continue to just keep fighting. And honestly, if you do that, you're going to be successful. There's, you know, over a long enough period of time with your head down, working hard, the success will come. I guarantee it. Thanks so much, Philip. A reminder, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. Mike, thanks very much. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks, Dan. Be safe. Good talk.